Esther chapter 1. I want to commend the very first thing I do this evening, the faithful and the holy women who listened last Sunday evening, who believed what they heard, and who did one or more of three things. First, you did some positive actions this week to practice what you heard last Sunday evening. In particular, I praise you if you did what I recommended to do this week. I commend you in the name of Jesus Christ and from Almighty God for being subject to his word and be having faith and believing that word and doing it. I commend you for your action at trying to submit to your husbands better and doing what I recommended last Sunday. If you can't remember, you're going to have to suffer for a little while until I recommend it again, like in about the next one hour. The second thing I want to do is thank and commend and praise the women who either called me this week, spoke to me in person, or wrote me and said thank you for preaching the Word of God as it relates to the submission of the woman. They were numerous. Half the congregation spoke to me this past week and thanked me for preaching on that subject. And then there were those that went beyond just thanks, and they asked that I preach on it again. And how can a minister ever turn down a request like that? Several women three, not including my wife, said that due to the nation that we live in and the tremendous emphasis, influence, and degree to which our nation stands against godly submission by women, that they need to be hit hard and to have it repeated. Given that I had three pages, single space, that I tried to cover last Sunday evening, I feel that I should spend another sermon on this subject. The importance of this subject deserves the repetition of the subject. If a husband fails in some of his duties, which will be addressed with all the force that any woman in here can imagine, if a husband fails in his duties, it does not dissolve the marriage or break the marriage. If a woman does not fulfill her obligations, it breaks the marriage. One is more important than the other. If a king is not as benevolent as he should be, does that destroy the kingdom? If subjects do not submit to the king, does that destroy the kingdom? By definition, you don't have a kingdom. The nature of a marriage is a mutual consent for authority and submission. And if the woman does not voluntarily submit, and that heartily, as we'll define, then the marriage doesn't even exist as God intended it. So the repetition is important. Those that failed to do anything this past week, I pity you. I pity you and your husbands. You're guaranteeing marriages that are going to leave you frustrated, your husband dissatisfied, and no glory to God and a poor example to your children, whoever you are. This morning I preached on faith. 
This evening, I'm going to preach a subject again, as I did last Sunday evening, that will allow you women to practice faith in one of the most definite, most difficult ways that a woman can practice faith. Yes, Abraham might have taken Isaac up to offer him as a burnt sacrifice. Caleb might have taken the mountain of the Anakim. But a woman, if she'll submit the way God describes, is doing something equivalent. And this is an opportunity for women to practice faith. Remember, faith subdues kingdoms. It does exploits. And a woman that can serve her husband in the way the Bible women serve their husbands in this generation will be doing an exploit. A woman that submits to her husband the way the Bible teaches will be working righteousness, which is the second characteristic of faith. A woman that practices Bible submission will obtain promises. The Bible teaches that they who wait on their masters shall be honored. That is a promise with a condition. The condition being obeyed by faith, the promise will be realized. The mystery of Christ and his church and the workings of this universe will be understood by a woman that practices Bible submission. She will not be understood by a woman that does not practice it. And last of all, a woman has opportunity to give sacrifice and make sacrifice to the Lord her God and to her husband by properly submitting. I have begun this series on marriage for us to maximize our marriages. I am not preaching this for our marriages to be better. Who wants anything better? We want the best marriages. We want to maximize them. And that's what I'm preaching this series of messages for. As I mentioned last Sunday evening in my introduction, there are lots of books that you can purchase at a Christian bookstore about marriage. I mean, they've got rows of them now. Everyone wants to write a book on marriage because everyone has a new, innovative, cute, simple rule or rules that can make your marriage better. There are no cute, there are no simple, there are no neat or innovative rules for maximizing a marriage's potential. What are you all thinking about Jonathan leaving? You want his wife in here? Every woman ought to be in here. How can I help make a comment when everybody's head practically turns and sees who left the room? And you're all thinking the thought, I know what you're thinking. Sorry, Jonathan. Everyone turn and watch you leave. And I just answered the question, why did he leave? We're a family, brethren. If, if you feel embarrassed that we make a comment like that, maybe you're too Presbyterian. When we, read a, when, we, when we read about Bible assemblies, there's no definition in the New Testament for formality. It's unnecessary. We might as well all be thinking the same thing, be of one mind. My point was this. There are no cute, there's no simple, neat, or innovative rules for maximizing a marriage. You don't need 10 of this or 10 of that from some man's idea on how a marriage ought to be run. We ought to look at what the inventor said about marriage, God himself who designed marriage. Marriage will be maximized and can be done rather simply in this way. What God said, we exercise all the effort that we can and allow some time for it to have its effect. What God said... We do with all the effort we can muster with zeal and trust God to bless it over time. And that time will not take long if we do it God's way, because God does not take long blessing those that follow him diligently. 
There's no cute, simple answers to marriage problems. And by cute, I mean something innovative or that you need a counselor for that has a couple degrees in psychology. Marriage problems are sin, S-I-N. If you'd practice the Bible, there wouldn't be marriage problems. they disappear. All problems in this world are the cause of human sin. Let's look now at the subject that we dealt with last Sunday evening and review many of the things that were said, and I'll add a few things to the things that were said. First of all, women do not like to submit to their husbands. I know that. You women tell me that. You admit that to me. I appreciate that. I can understand that to a degree. You don't like to submit. You hate it. There's something inside of you that rebels, squashing all of your desires and casting yourself at your husband's feet and purposing in your mind to think about him always and to try and serve him and please him with your life. There's something in you that rebels against that, and that's the sin nature that you all have. It rebels against everything God said to do. For those women who claim not to have a problem to submit, who either don't know what submission is, so they can't measure their problem, or they're liars, for those that think they don't have a problem, test your spirit by confessing your faults and praising your husband specifically to his face this evening. Confess all your faults relative to your lack of submission, the attitude that you've had toward him, the evil thoughts you've entertained toward him, and then praise him for all the good things that do exist for every man in this congregation. Do it specifically. Do it this evening and see if you don't find something inside of you rebelling against such a recommendation. Last Sunday evening, I emphasized the fact that women often complain when they hear a man preaching on the submission of wives because they say inside, well, that's easy for you to say, you don't have to do it. I've heard it. I see it right now. The hand is writing on the wall, and I see it, and I feel it, and if you think I'm excited about preaching, there is a part of me that fears. Paul said he was with them in much fear and trembling in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. But believe me, there's part of me that fears God a great deal more. And if the Bible teaches it, I'm going to preach it regardless of how many female faces are made at me during an evening service. I think I'm big enough. I hope I am, by the grace of God, to not compromise a message because of faces. I'm not going to preach smooth things to have happy women in the church. I reminded the women that men submit to their masters. We do it every day. We do it all day long. Many times they're forward masters. Many times those masters are less intelligent than the men are. Many times those masters make decisions that, the, that your husbands could have made better, yet they submit. And oftentimes they do without answering back again. I reminded you of several examples of submission. I reminded you of secret service agents who will, without thinking, sacrifice their lives for the man they're serving. And then women complain because they have to, quote, sleep with them every night, unquote. Well, pity, pity. Secret service men will sacrifice their lives for the man they serve, and they don't even think about it. It is so built into them and trained into them and so much a part of their desire to save that man's life, it's an automatic reflex action. Let me remind you of a football game. What if there was a football game? They have second and one. 
at the opponent's 40-yard line, for you women, that means they can run any play they want because they have three plays to make one yard. And the coach sends in the message to the quarterback that he wants the wide receiver, the right wide, to go down 10 yards and do a button hook. And the right wide is thinking, with an opportunity like this, I want to run a post pattern to the goal post and take a touchdown pass. And so when the quarterback calls the play, the wide receiver in his mind says, that's a poor decision. We have two and one. What's lost? I can run a touchdown pass and the crowd can cheer me. And I can have another touchdown pass to go in the books. And so he goes wide. And when the ball is hiked, he runs a post pattern to the goal post. And the quarterback throws the ball 10 yards out for a button hook. And it's intercepted by a linebacker protecting against the quarterback scrambling. How often does that happen? How often does it happen and the coach know about it? What happens to players that do that in the middle of an important game? They're no longer players. Men submit. Can you imagine pilots flying our 747s coming into the big airport in Atlanta and the air traffic controller lining them up, one, two, three, four, five, six, on priority for landing? And... Pilot number five says, wait a minute, I've got my rights too. Why does pilot number one get to go before me? I got here first. And so he decides to land his plane, and 500 people go up and smoke and gasoline. Our civilization, our world, revolves around and can only function properly with submission. And men submit. Those pilots are men. They submit to air traffic controllers. Football wide out are men. They submit to quarterbacks and coaches. There's a definite chain of authority. And women, please try to see that. I have preached on the temperaments in order to make it easier for me to apply messages. The only advantage I see of knowing the temperaments is to be able to categorize in broad, rough groups of people those that will have more severe problems with certain Bible commandments than others. Choleric women will obviously, by definition, have more trouble submitting to a man than phlegmatic women. By nature, a phlegmatic woman is a follower. By nature, a choleric woman is a leader. The choleric, by nature, man or woman, wants to rule. When that rule is questioned, they want to debate. When they're told they have to submit, they want to excuse and defend themselves. They're masters at debating, resisting, and leading. And in the proper position, what a fantastic temperament to be given by God. But guess what the natural requirements of a wife are? Submit follow and shut up. Be in silence. So there's an automatic violation of the natural temperament that's given. So a choleric woman must more seriously, more diligently squash her natural tendencies, her natural disposition. A phlegmatic is a follower. A phlegmatic doesn't want to argue. 
A phlegmatic doesn't like conflict. Phlegmatic women do not, are not known for their contentious brawling. And they make, it's easier for them to submit as wives. But let me mention something about phlegmatic women while I'm covering the temperament. While the choleric women have a natural disposition for ruling and debating with their husbands and find it harder to submit, phlegmatic women, while naturally submissive, have an equally and, and, and a great problem with being uncommunicative and lacking initiative in the marriage. A phlegmatic woman keeping everything inside, not opening up, not being expressive verbally, not confessing to her husband, not talking to him, not praising him, not telling him the things that she ought to tell him, creates a source of frustration different from the choleric wife, but nonetheless a source of frustration. Her lack of initiative by her temperament in doing the things she ought to and pleasing her husband because she beat him to the idea is rare in phlegmatic women. The choleric will usually beat her husband if she gets an idea. Think about that, women. You're made differently. There's nothing wrong with a natural disposition to lead and to show aggression. But when you're a wife, it's a severe disadvantage. The opposite works for the husbands when we get to them. The choleric is a natural ruler. The phlegmatic being a natural follower finds it more difficult to command and rule his household. But more on that in the future. In our day, women, I understand the problem you have to learn submission and to think of it at all times. There's nothing in this world to remind you to be submissive. There's no billboards telling you to be submissive. They haven't come out with a soap opera in the last 10 years that I know of that will teach you to be submissive and loyal and faithful to your husband. Everything is against you in this day. Today, the woman gets to choose who she marries. I'll have more to say on that before I say amen tonight. The woman gets to choose who she marries. Do you know what? From the very beginning, the fact that the woman is even offered that choice, the fact the woman is even offered the choice makes her think she's an equal partner to the relationship right from the start. Not only do women have the choice in marriage and thus think they can end it when they choose and they have their rights in that marriage, after all, I had the right to choose you or reject you. Not only that, most women today have not been trained by their fathers how to be submissive because their fathers haven't ruled over them. If a woman had been properly ruled by her father for 20 years when she marries a man at 21 and takes off with a new relationship under a man, it'd be easy if her father had ruled her and forced her desires to be subject to his desires. Father's a word of advice. You can ignore it or practice it. If you, in matters of indifference, in matters of Christian liberty, will force your will on your daughters often. Do it. They are going to marry a man that will do it without thinking. And if they're not used to it, you are going to put your daughter in a situation where she will be torn in half. Not used to or exposed to this relationship of having to submit to a man and squashing her desires. 
Daughters are to be under the rule of parents just as sons are. They are to honor their father. If they have learned to honor and reverence their father, they will honor and reverence their husband more easily. There's few examples of holy women today, women who honestly, fully, absolutely, unconditionally worship, reverence, honor, obey, and serve their husbands. I am sorry for that, ladies. But those of you who are spiritual, let's make sure you are examples to this congregation. I'm sorry you don't have more. There are some in this congregation. And for fear that people always take it the wrong way, I'll not mention names, but there are definite examples. And for you women that want examples, come and ask me. I'll give you a number of older and younger women who submit, it's not, and it's obvious, better than others. Not only that, all authority positions are crumbling. And because all authority positions are crumbling, there's no real submission anywhere. On the job, if your husband was coming home and talking about a fellow employee having, having been beat and went to the company infirmary for a day and then died, you know, it sort of helps to submit. When we have a government that would search out a murderer and shoot him in the streets and leave the community crime watch to clean up the mess, it would help people submit to authority. That's the way it ought to be done. It ought not to be hid away in secret. It ought not to take seven years. And it ought not to cost us $123,000 to put a murderer to death. If all of that was happening, ladies, I know it would be easier for you. It would be easier for children to obey their parents. I read a number of scriptures last week. This morning, I want to read this morning. Time flies when you're having fun. <laughs> this evening. This evening, I want to read Esther chapter 1, beginning at verse 10. Esther chapter 1 and verse 10. I've preached on this before. I don't have time to comment on it. But I want you to think about the submission of women. Remember Ahasuerus, the king of Persia, and his wife, the queen Vashti, were holding a great celebration in the palace. Verse 10. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bizza, Harbana, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zether, and Carcass, the seven chamberlains that served in the presence of Ahasuerus the king, to bring Vashti the queen before the king with the crown royal, to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was fair to look on. But the queen Vashti refused to come at the king's commandment by his chamberlains. Therefore was the king very wroth, and his anger burned in him. Then the king said to the wise men, which knew the times, for so was the king's manner toward all that knew law and judgment. And the next unto him was Karshina, Shether, Admetha, Tarshish, Mears, Marcina, and Mamukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, which saw the king's face and which sat the first in the kingdom. What shall we do unto the queen Vashti according to law? because she has not performed the commandment of the king Ahasuerus by the chamberlains. And Mimucan answered before the king and the princes, Vashti the queen has not done wrong to the king only, but also to all the princes. 
and to all the people that are in all the provinces of the king Ahasuerus. For this deed of the queen shall come abroad unto all women, so that they shall despise their husbands in their eyes when it shall be reported. The king Ahasuerus commanded Vashti the queen to be brought in before him, but she came not. Likewise shall the ladies of Persia and Media say this day unto all the king's princes, which have heard of the deed of the queen. Thus shall there arise too much contempt and wrath. If it please the king, let there go a royal commandment from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, that it be not altered, that Vashti come no more before king Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal estate unto another that is better than she. And when the king's decree which he shall make shall be published throughout all his empire, for it is great, all the wives shall give to their husbands honor, both the great and small. And the saying pleased the king and the princes, and the king did according to the word of Memucan. For he sent letters into all the king's provinces, into every province according to the writing thereof, and to every people after their language, that every man should bear rule in his own house and that it should be published according to the language of every people. What a fantastic government. Now think about it, ladies. Your husband wants to parade your beauty in front of other men. What can you hear in your mind? Oh, come on, grow up, you beast. Grow up, you beast. Listen, if a man has a beautiful wife, and he wants her to dress in such and such a way in order to show off the great gift God has given him in bounds of modesty, which are not said to be violated here, a woman ought to submit and obey. He is no beast. The woman is the what of the man, the glory of the man. Every man ought to be proud of his wife. Every man ought to want his wife on display. She is the glory of the man. God made this world for men because men are the glory of God. Not women. Men are the glory of God. This world is on display for us to image God. And by us, I mean men. Men are the image and glory of God by the reason of authority we have over a sphere, over a little universe. And the woman is the glory of the man. She's something a man ought to be proud of and to be shown in public and for the man to want her to be seen in public and proud of it. Obviously, again, within bounds of Christian modesty. But within bounds of Christian modesty, a woman can still be attractive. Why don't you go read about Sarah? Go read about Rebecca? Go read about Rachel? Go read about Abigail? Go read about Bathsheba? Five enough? In public, the Holy Spirit said they were visibly favored of God and beautiful to look upon, and their husbands didn't keep them home under a bushel basket. You beast. Grow up. I don't know what she said to the other women that were at her celebration. Remember, King Ahasuerus is over with the men, baptized with the other women. And as it so often happens, when you get a group of women together, they degenerate into rebellion as a group. And so it was there. Notice, in front of other women, she was going to have to humble herself and obey her husband. 
There have been groups of women in this church that have talked about doing certain things, and certain of those women have said, well, I need to ask my husband first. And there have been words and looks of astonishment. What in the world is so astonishing about a wife asking her husband before she does something? Notice that King Ahasuerus was a very wise king, and he had some very wise men around him. Oh, king, this isn't simply a rejection of your authority. This is going to create trouble throughout the entire empire because all the other women of the princes are going to see what Vashti did and so far has got away with, and they're going to do the same, and they're going to despise their husbands in their eyes. Some of you women like to say, but I do what he wants me to do. But how many of you do what he wants you to do while you despise him in your eyes? I'm going to get to this point in a minute. Despising him in your eyes while you do exactly what he wanted is rebellion, and it's not pleasing to God. You haven't proved anything yet. And notice what would happen when wives would despise their husbands in their eyes. It would create much wrath. Where would the wrath come from? The wrath would come from the husband who is losing control of his wife. This is a point I don't know how to communicate, but I'm going to try. When you women have your 15 or 16 or 17-year-old daughter stand up and look you in the eye and defy you, when you have your 15, 16, or 17-year-old daughter toss her head, roll her eyes, walk out of the room, look away and not look at your face, you will regret if you're wise ever having done anything close to that to your husband. There is a day coming, the Bible says, whatsoever man soweth that shall he also reap. If you have not submitted to the authority God has put over you, you will pay the consequences. And women, I've, I've seen them, I've listened to them, throw up their hands. Oh, they get depressed. They're so discouraged. They're at wit's end. The children mock them. The children don't listen to them. The children ignore them. How many times has your husband been talking to you and you walked away? You know you were busy doing the dishes. It was a convenient excuse to get away from the table and go back to the kitchen. You know it was just an excuse to get away from him while he was telling you something that wasn't pleasant. How many of you rolled your eyes, tossed your heads, not looked at him in the face while he was addressing you and did not show him the reverence and honor that God gives him? Let me try to appeal to you, thinking about your daughters doing that to you. It's going to tear your heart out. And when a daughter does it to you, hear me well, it's nothing. It is nothing compared to what happens to a man when his wife does it to him. Your children have no relationship to you like a woman does to a man. That is a temporary relationship between parents and children. Fifteen years, you boot them out. Fifteen years from when they're little children that can raise up on their hind legs and say no. It's a temporary relationship. God never created a marriage for children. God created marriage for the man. And you as women, and I am begging you to listen to me, you as women are the glory of the man. You are the companion of his bosom. You are his lover. You are his servant. You are his helper. You are the gift from God. You are his confidant. 
And when you roll your eyes or give any of those subtle and yet very obvious shows of disrespect and rebellion to your husband, you tear his heart. A phlegmatic husband treated like that will withdraw into a shell and be half the man that God intended him to be. And I'm defending those husbands right now. And a choleric husband, you do that to him, he'll tear your head off. And then women wonder why their husbands are so obnoxious. You check the behavior you've had toward your husband. A melancholy. They'll go into a severe depression. It'll come out in anger and criticism. They'll criticize everything you can imagine. They can overlook a lot if you'd ever serve them. Someday, we're a young church. You women have never faced it because you've never been in authority yet. You wait till you have a woman stand up who's your height and look you in the eye and defy you or ignore you, and you'll get just a taste. It's nothing compared to what a man goes through when his wife does that to him. You women have the potential of making your husbands great, and if you'll make your husbands great, you'll be great. Your husband will rise up and call you blessed and praise you, and so will your children. You treat him without honor and respect, and you toss your head, roll your eyes at him, you'll destroy him. And when you destroy him, you destroy yourself and your own marriage and your children. God have pity on all of you that do that. They knew that in Persia. Too bad they don't know it in America. They knew that in Persia. And the wise men said, we can't let this happen. It's going to create a great deal of anger in the kingdom. And that anger was going to be in the parts of the husbands who were losing control. Remember, sisters, the marriage relationship is voluntary. Submission is voluntary. The man knows that. I want to tell you women something. Submission by your 16-year-old daughter is voluntary too. You know what? She can walk out of that house and kiss you goodbye and say, have a nice life. If she doesn't obey God's word. And your husband knows that's true about his wife also. Some Neanderthals might think they can create submission in a woman. They haven't learned much about women yet. <laughs> now, when I say submission is voluntary, and that's why the apostle commands it, why did he speak to wives? Wives, comma, submit yourselves to your own husbands and everything. Why did he say husbands? Beat your wives into submission. Husbands, make your wives submissive. It is a voluntary relationship. Because of that, when you show those little marks of disrespect, your husband isn't always going to slap back. He's not going to yell back. He's not going to cry. He's got to maintain his manliness. For any women that are wise, they're going to hear me so loud and clear, it's going to scream in their ears the rest of their lives. You crush and destroy that man. He knows your submission is voluntary, and when you don't do it aggressively, fully, and absolutely, and unconditionally, you tear away his manhood. And you know what we have today in America? A bunch of wimps crawling around like puppy dogs. What is the first thing the apostle always said when he got to the subject of marriage? 
wives. Submit yourselves to your own husbands and everything. Go read it, 1 Peter 3, Ephesians 5, Colossians 3. He always addresses wives first, and that's why I do it. That's where the Bible emphasis is, because that's necessary for the marriage to work. God, help me. I wish I could communicate this point. I want some men in this congregation that whether I live or die, they're going to stand and be men and command their households, and some of you women are men destroyers. And with Solomon, I say, I find more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets and her hands as bands. Whoso pleaseth God shall escape from her. Solomon tried a thousand. And he said they were more bitter than death. It creates anger in your husband. And I will tell you, 90% of the time it doesn't even come to the surface because he's trying to maintain his integrity with himself. Now, a choleric is going to get there more often. But I want to warn you about the quiet types. They keep it inside, and it seethes, and it creates bitterness. And when it does come out, you'll regret that it was ever there to come out. Who in the world wants to be married and submit and serve a wimp? Some of you women are so foolish, you cut, off your, you cut off your nose to help your face. Sounds profitable. Verse 18 of Esther chapter 1, Thus shall there arise too much contempt and wrath. Look at Proverbs. Before we leave Esther chapter 1, that letter was written, according to verse 22, that every man should bear rule in his own house, that women would know that it does not pay to rebel against their husbands. And there's a whole lot more than just outward rebellion like Vashti not coming at his command. It creates contempt and wrath. What is contempt? A contentious woman is known for her contempt. Look at Proverbs, I believe it's 19:13. Proverbs 19:13 Doesn't don't you women want to be husbands of great I mean wives of great men don't you want your husbands to be all that they can be I'll tell you right now half of your husbands won't even tell you what I'm telling you right now Oh they might do it once every 10 years you do little things that half of the husbands in this room by the nature of the temperament God gave them won't say anything to you about it, and it'll seethe inside, and it'll create bitterness inside and anger inside, and you won't even know it. You think you're getting away with something, and it's having no effect. You're destroying the manliness of your man. You destroy his manliness, you're going to be married to a wimp, and if you're married to a wimp, it's not a fun life. It's a frustrating life for a woman. A woman wants a leader. She wants a lord. I don't understand some of you women. You're not very wise. That's why we have the Word of God. I know when I served a president, I wanted him to be the greatest that he could possibly be. I like serving and working for someone who's the greatest. Why in the world do you want to serve someone who's a pitiful, incompetent, nincompoop? Proverbs chapter 19 and verse 13, a foolish son is the calamity of his father, 
and the contentions of a wife are a continual dropping. It's like a rain that just drops and drops and gets on your nerves till it drives you crazy. And a contentious wife, you say, what's a contentious wife? It's not one that hits her husband over the head with a frying pan. That would be contentious, but that's not all that's contentious. A wife that rolls her eyes and balks, debates, questions, argues, ignores, pouts, cries, is a contentious wife, and it drives men crazy. You say, he hasn't told me it's driving him crazy. Half the men in this congregation by their temperament won't. They keep it inside. They keep everything inside. Listen, I, hardly, I don't even know their middle name. And all men do it to a degree. All men do it to a degree. And I'm warning you, women. Look at chapter 21, verse 9. Proverbs 21, 9. Solomon the wise man. Now here's a psychologist that I'll read and listen to and preach. Will you accept his advice? It is better to dwell in a corner of the housetop than with a brawling woman in a wide house. Will you women listen to me for a minute? Why do so many men get wrapped up in their jobs or their hobby? hobbies? Why? Why do so many men have a workshop where they can go and fritter away so much of their time? I'll tell you, it's to find the corner of the housetop and get away from that brawling woman. You say, I haven't wrestled with them yet. Listen, brawling means a whole lot more than that. Solomon wasn't worried about a woman trying to wrestle with her husband. Any husband from these days would have pinned her rather quickly. I don't know about today. Listen, some of the Amazons I see on big time wrestling now, I'm glad I married I'm glad I married the woman I did. Believe me, brethren, I don't sit at home watching women on big time wrestling. <laughs> I, I have seen it, and it's pitiful. It's, it's pitiful and frightening. <laughs> Hear me, women. Ever known a man like that? Ever known a man who gets wrapped up in his workshop, comes in for supper, sits there quietly, doesn't command his children anymore, isn't aggressive with other men. He becomes a very passive, quiet, depressed, sad, forlorn man, throws himself in his workshop, plays with his hobbies. What happened to that man? Why isn't he a David? Why isn't he a Jehu? What happened to him? Women destroyed him. And it doesn't take a divorce. That would, listen, if you would divorce him and run away and marry another man, that'd be the kindest thing you could do to him. I'd pop the first cork. You ruin him by sticking with him because you're obnoxious. You're contentious and you brawl with him. You fight, you resist. You don't do what he asks. He tells you once. Listen, if a phlegmatic man tells you once, believe me, that he's not going to say it many more times. If he got it out one time, it was enough of a trauma for his personality that he may not do it again for a year. If he tells you he likes something once and you don't do it and he doesn't bring it up again, and if you're wise, you're listening to me right now, if he mentions it once, or twice, and you don't do it, and he doesn't bring it up again, it's not because he's changed his mind. It's because he's quit, and it's seething inside of him. You've ruined him. And I hate you. Any woman that does that, 
I have seen so many beat and defeated men in my life, and all of you have seen them. If you'll stop for just a minute, you were probably born to a defeated man. If your husband has stated one time that he wants you to do something, you ought to give every diligent effort to do it for him. Whether it's something he wants you to do in the bedroom, I don't know how to make it plainer. How are the families of America being destroyed by the women? It is better to dwell in a corner of the housetop than with a brawling woman in a wide house. When you see a marriage that appears to be joint tenants in common, you've all seen the men that I'm talking about. Why aren't they the courageous, bold, confident men that God made them to be? Their wives have destroyed them. And Solomon said, The man that pleaseth God shall escape from her. Proverbs 21.9, It's better to dwell in the corner of a housetop than with a brawling woman in a wide house. Proverbs 21.19, It is better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and an angry woman. Ever get angry with your husband? If your husband responds back in anger, thank God you're married to him. A choleric. It's more visible to see. If your husband doesn't do anything when you get angry, I'll tell you what's happening on the inside, and I guarantee it absolutely, unequivocally, you're crushing him. And it'd be better for him to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and an angry woman. Look at Proverbs 25 and verse 24. Proverbs 25:24. It is better to dwell in the corner of the housetop than with a brawling woman and in a wide house. You say you already read that. Why do you read it again? Why did Solomon write it again? And let me ask you women something. Show me a verse in the book of Proverbs where Solomon even indirectly mentions an oppressive husband. One. A hundred dollars you can take your husband out for dinner. Let's keep going. I haven't reached the end yet. Proverbs chapter 27 and verse 15. A continual dropping in a very rainy day and a contentious woman are alike. If, if you women could get this message, we could have a revival in this church that would put the charismatics to shame. There's too much contempt and despising your husband in your eyes and not enough adoration and praise and reverence, and service, and silence, and willingness, and a heart to do exactly what he wants. Believe me, a phlegmatic and a melancholy husband is not going to ask you over and over to do something. He'll ask you once or twice, and when you don't do it, you've crushed him. Would to God he could live in the wilderness with the bears and the lions and eat wild locusts and honey. It'd be a better existence than with such a woman. And Solomon said that five times. And find me the verse where Solomon deals with the husband. Submission is giving up yourself to your husband for his pleasure and service. It is giving up yourself to your husband for his pleasure and his service. It's casting yourself at his feet and saying, I want to please you. I want to serve you. Use me to make you happy. You say, that sounds bizarre. 
Why does it sound bizarre? Because you're listening with 20th century ears. Jonathan, you can take her out. Why does it sound bizarre? Listen, you're hearing it. I have to say it. I know it sounds different. But it's giving yourself up to your husband. It's casting yourself at his feet. I'm trying to use words to give you a mental picture. And saying, use me for your pleasure and your service. I want to do everything to please you. That is my life. It's my existence. It's the reason God made me. It's to make you happy. What if a woman did that? What a revival. What a revival. I guarantee it. A couple families are already experiencing it because a couple wives did it this past week. It's an absolute determination in your mind. It doesn't take a week. It doesn't take a month. It doesn't, you don't say to yourself, well, I want to work at being a better wife. That's a joke. Listen, that's what everybody says in every other church. How about starting right now with an act of faith? And the act of faith is God said it. I believe it. And it's settled. Let's do it. It's an act of mind. My purpose in this universe is to please and serve my husband. My desires are to be his desires, Genesis 3.16. I am to reverence him, Ephesians 5 and 33. I am to obey, I am to obey him, Titus chapter 2 and verse 5. I am to treat him and obey him as Sarah who called her husband Lord. 1 Peter 3.6. Listen, there's only one woman in this congregation that calls her husband sir. You stop and think about it for a minute, and any woman in her mind who says that's ridiculous to even mention the thought, you're rebelling while I speak. What in the world is wrong with a woman calling her husband sir? You want to use Lord instead? I'll approve it. God will approve it. Say it to yourself in your mind. Think of a situation in public where you ask your wife a question and she calls you sir. Bizarre, isn't it? Neanderthal. Prehistoric caveman might have done it while he reached into some bowl for a rabbit leg. You know why it's so bizarre? We live in a sick age. If we just went back a hundred years, it wouldn't sound bizarre at all. I want to show you something about Sarah calling Abraham Lord. Look at Genesis chapter 18. A smart woman who is rebellious will say, well, that was just a term used for public deference to his position. A smart woman that's rebellious will say, that word Lord was just used in public to make a public display that he is her husband and she is his wife. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 6, Wives, obey your husbands as did Sarah and the other holy women, calling him Lord. Let's see where Sarah called Abraham Lord. Was it in public for a display of deference? Genesis chapter 18 verse 12, God has said outside the tent that Sarah is going to have a baby. And Genesis 18:12, the Holy Spirit tells us this. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I am waxed old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? Does that come with any force? 
In her own mind, while she thought about her husband, she addressed him as Lord. Peter picks up from the Holy Spirit's little look into her soul and says that she called him Lord not out of habit, not out of a vain show, but out of obedience and subjection to her husband as an example to all women that will be holy. And I've heard only one woman in this congregation call her husband, sir. That doesn't mean you all have to start saying, sir, necessarily. But it sure does mean a change in attitude. Where is the reverence? Listen, reverence. Ask your husbands to throw reverence up on the Godspeed screen and see how reverence is used in the Bible. Reverence is used in the worship of God. Reverence is used for servants to their masters, and reverence is used for subjects to kings. And, of course, it's used for wives to their husbands. When was the last time you reverenced your husband? You say, I cook him three meals a day. He can hire a maid for 20 bucks to do that. He can go to McDonald's and have him do that. That's not reverence. It's not even approaching reverence. It has nothing to do with reverence. Reverence is absolute humility before your husband recognizing his position that God gave him. It's honoring him and lifting him up and praising him. When was the last time you praised your husband in intimate ways, verbally, about who and what he is and the thankfulness that you have for the things he's done for you? Submission is a constant effort in your conscience to always think about what he needs and wants and make sure you're satisfying it. Your mind should be running 24 hours a day with what does my man need and want. I want to fulfill it. I am going to serve him. You lift him up high and you do that, and God will not only honor you, your husband will honor you. Proverbs 31 guarantees it. Does it not guarantee it? The virtuous woman, her husband, shall rise up and call her blessed. How do you obtain that promise? By believing that submission and reverence and obedience and subjection and silence is the means to it. God gives you the means. God gives the promise. It's simple. Women, you have the mountain of the Anakims to take. And a godly woman with faith will say, give me this mountain. Some of you ought to be itching to get out of here so you can get home and honor your husband. Some of you did that last week. You tore my heart up with rejoicing. You have no idea what it's like to be a minister and be a man and preach a message like I did last Sunday evening and then hear about women rejoicing in it and practicing it. And before God, you women get praised without knowing it. But my God knows it. My God will bless you and your families. And the rest of you women, you get the opposite if and when you don't submit to the preaching of God's Word. I'm told to do that. I'm told in Hebrews 13, 17 that a good minister is giving account of some souls with grief and other souls with joy. Numbers chapter 30. Numbers chapter 30. How much is the man the head of the woman? In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul teaches God is the head of Christ, Christ is the head of the man, and the man is the head of the woman. 
the woman does not have a direct relationship with God. There is someone between her and God, and that is the man. Paul said it, 1 Corinthians 11. Numbers 30 is an entire chapter dedicated to this one single, simple thought that's repeated over and over. If a woman ever makes a vow to God, her husband can simply disannul it and make it void. That's the entire chapter in a nutshell, except if it's a woman still living at home under her father. A daughter and a wife are the same thing when it comes to their relationship to God and being under authority. That's why you fathers, if you let your, your daughters go out and live a single life without being under the authority of a man, you are accomplices in their destruction. If living at home, a daughter made a vow to God, and her father heard the vow, he could just cut it right off and disannul it, make it void of none effect. God had no, didn't even know that it existed. The, husband, the, the father just eliminated it. Same authority applies to a husband. That is how much the husband is the head of the woman, and Christ is the head of the husband. That kind of authority, that kind of a position God has given him, you don't even have a right to say that God, that I'm going to serve God in such and such a way, your husband can annul it, unless you have a Bible verse for it. Now remember, what kind of a context would things like this come up? In Israel, women could go make free will offerings. What was a free will offering? I want to go make an offering to God that's not required by the law, simply for my own conscience. So the woman says, I want to go make an offering in Jerusalem. It's going to take me two days, honey. I'm going to be gone. She didn't say, honey, what'd she say? Lord, I'm going to be gone two days, and I'm going to make a sacrifice of a couple lambs from our flock. No, you're not. I need you here. The kids need you. I can't afford to let you go. I want you here. I'll miss you. Yes, my Lord. You say, that sounds bizarre. Sounds right wonderful. You say, well, that's easy for you to say because you're a man. When I preached Bible economics, did I preach the submission of employees to employers with any less enthusiasm? Numbers chapter 30 is powerful. I'm not going to read it. We don't have time. Another passage I don't have time to read is 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Why is a woman supposed to have long hair? A woman is supposed to have long hair in order to put power on her head. What is that power? I mean, will the hair stand up? Will it catch things from God? What is the power on her head? It is a symbol of being under power. It's a symbol of being under authority. The woman is to have long hair that commends her position of being under authority. A man, what do you men think every time you see a man with long hair? I mean long hair. Sickening, effeminate. What would, I won't ask you what you want to do to him. We can talk about that later. He's not a man. He's a woman. It's effeminate. It's, it, it shows weakness. It shows effeminacy. It shows a lack of a man's nature. A woman is to have long hair because it is her glory. You can say whatever you want about hair being a hassle, long hair being a hassle, long hair taking lots of work, long hair requiring extra shampoo. You can do all you want. You can say all you want. God said long hair is a glory to a woman. Now, for some reason, I'm dumb enough and foolish enough, thank you, God, 
to believe what he said. Long hair is a glory to a woman, and the woman is the glory of the man. By wearing that long hair, it looks, it looks feminine. It looks like she's under submission. And the woman is to have that long hair because of the angels who well understand authority. That's what 1 Corinthians chapter 11 teaches. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 33, you need not turn there, says to women, see that ye reverence your husbands. See that ye reverence your husbands. Now, I'm, I'm a little disjointed this evening. I know I'm running all over my outline. I hope you can still follow. See that ye reverence your husbands. I want you to connect that in your mind with what I read from Solomon in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Why is it so important that women see that they reverence their husbands? Otherwise, they'll destroy their husbands if they don't reverence them. Reverence in the Bible is calling your husband Lord, humbling yourself beneath him, always wanting his best. Women, just listen to me for a minute. Here are godly women. Now, the thing they may have proposed may not have been all that godly, but it sprang from a godly attitude. Sarah wants her man to have children. Women, sisters, did not desire children in the Old Testament so that they could have children that could be called by their name. Women wanted to bear children in order to please their husbands. That is why Sarah would tell Abraham, here's my handmaid, I want you to go in and sleep with her tonight, and she can bear a child on my knees for you. Now, women, can you think about telling your husband to go sleep with another woman? You say, well, that's a bizarre single case. How about Rachel? How about Leah? You can't even imagine it. You can't even imagine it. You know why? You can't even think deep enough about reverence and honor to even get. God help us, we can do it. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me, but it's going to take repetition and reminders and exhorting in this word for you women to approach what those women did. Think about that for a minute. What I said this morning just wasn't vain speech. Children are the man. Women did not care who bore them as long as they carried the father's name. I want to tell you something about my wife. I do not praise her very often. I'll be saying enough in the weeks to come that will condemn me. But I'll praise her for one thing. Before we were married, something she told me, and she did call me Lord, she told me the greatest thing I want to do for you is to give you a child. On her own, we had never even talked about it. I distinctly remember the very night, I can remember where I was when she said that to me. I want to give you a child. That's the greatest thing a woman can give. I well remember that. And a woman who honors her husband in the Bible didn't even care who he was sleeping with as long as she could give him children. Reverence. Am I making a point this evening that we have some work to do? Do you treat your husband like a god, little g? Do you treat him like a god? Do you worship him? Adore him? what the word reverence means. 
Remember, reverence is used for God. Holy and reverend is his name, and it says reverence your husband because God put that man there. Do you treat him like a god? Do you humble yourself before him like he's a god? Do you praise him? When was the last time you praised your husband? You just poured out your heart, and some of you more clothed ones are going to have to work hard at it. Pour out your heart and tell him what you think of him. That you... And how do you think of him? Well, I don't respect him. How can I say anything good about him? You're sinning in saying it. He doesn't have to earn your respect. He holds a position that God requires you to respect. Tell him how much you want to serve him and praise him for the good things he has done. And every husband in this room has done a number of good things in his own life and for his wife that you can think of. And if you need help, come and see me. Go ask some other women that might be thinking they wish they had your husband. Look at Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. This room gets any hotter. I'm going to show a choleric disposition and take that little box off that wall. What swings in temperature? Can you feel it? Or is it just me? Colossians chapter 3. Remember, in the Bible, servants are compared to wives. Remember 1 Peter chapter 2 tells servants to submit to their masters even though they're forward. And then it immediately says, and likewise, ye wives, be in subject to your husbands. And guess what kind of husbands are under consideration in 1 Peter 3? Loving, tender, converted, God-fearing, good men. Right? Wrong. Ungodly, idol-worshipping, pagan, polygamous, unconverted men. Be subject to them. Absolutely. Calling them Lord. Now, what? Doesn't the Bible give a little advantage to masters and husbands who are in the faith? If a woman is required by Scripture to call her husband Lord who's worshiping an idol, what does God expect of you women who have husbands that fear God? When the Bible speaks to servants, it's also speaking to wives. Colossians chapter 3, verse 22, Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. We know that applies to wives because it says in verse 18, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands. In Ephesians 5, it says, Submit yourselves to your own husbands in everything. It's a very similar wording to what is here. But I want you to notice this, women, about your attitude in submission. Not with eye service as men pleasers. Not as eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. I hear this from the women. But I submit and do what he tells me to. But I did do what he wanted me to do, didn't I? Is that obeying God? Oh, how many times women will excuse themselves in a sermon like this. I do what my husband tells me to do. Just listen to the tone of their voice. That doesn't mean anything to God the way you're doing it. This verse tells you how you please God, and you don't do it with eye service. What's eye service? Doing what he told you to do. Doing what he told you to do is eye service. He tells you to do something, you go do it. What he can see looks like you're serving him. 
Are you following me this evening? It's eye service. What he says to do, you do it. To make it appear to the eye that you're serving him. It's called eye service. You're trying to please your husband outwardly, as men pleases. As men pleases. There's worldlings out in this world that work hard for their masters. But what is their motive? God doesn't accept it. God doesn't accept it because it's not done in singleness of heart. How many times have you done something for your husband and said, well, I did it, didn't I? But you didn't do it with a single heart. You did it while you were despising him. While you were saying, that's a stupid request, a stupid idea. Look at how I slave for this man. God doesn't even accept it. You think you're such a virtuous woman. God doesn't even accept it. Listen, we can hire women that do better than that. We can hire women to do everything that you do as a wife that do better than that. Why do you think men go to other women for maids and for prostitution? Because they'll get what they crave for 20 lousy bucks. I serve it as men pleases. That isn't the way you're to, treat, to serve your husband. You're to do it in singleness of heart, fearing God. You're to have one motive, one purpose, one mind about the whole thing. This is my man. God's given him to me. By serving him, I'm serving God. I want to serve him. I'm going to do it with a single heart as unto God. Not, I can't stand this guy, but I'll go ahead and do it so he won't beat me up or so I can look like a virtuous woman to everyone else in the congregation. You may not verbalize it just that way, but that's what you're saying. God condemns it. He goes on to say in verse 23, And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. And then I hear some woman say, Well, I don't love him anymore. I don't love him anymore, so I can't do it from the heart. I'm sorry. There is a footnote here for my center column. If the woman no longer loves her husband, she's not required to do it from the heart. God doesn't care what you think about your love. God doesn't care what you think about your feelings. To love your husband is a commandment, not an option. You don't sit around and pray for God to fill you with love so you can obey your husband from the heart. You obey your husband from the heart. A servant doesn't sit around trying to work up nice, warm feelings for his master. Could you ever do it, Matthew? You can't sit around waiting for nice, warm feelings. You just serve him from the heart, and that means with the best attitude, with enthusiasm, that you can. I know Matthew works with enthusiasm. That where in the Bible does God ever spend much time on warm feelings? Why didn't he bring in bowels of compassion here? Wives, as long as you've got bowels of compassion, serve from the heart your husbands and servants. Serve your masters that way. Do it heartily. What does it mean to do it heartily? Enthusiastically, zealously, diligently. You know, there ought to be a spring in your step not a heavy step as you stomp out of the room without stomping out of the room. How many of you husbands have ever uh, witnessed that one? You know, stomp out of the room, but don't stomp out of the room. Just a heavy foot. And we've all seen it. It's one of those little things you can do that crushes your man. And it's one of those things you do that if you had a husband that ruled his home, you'd pay for it. Look at Titus chapter 2 and verse 9. 
Titus chapter 2 and verse 9. Remember verses 3, 4, and 5 are what the older women are supposed to teach the younger women. Then Paul goes to young men in verses 6 and 7, and Titus in verse 8, 7 and 8. And then he says in verse 9, exhort servants, which applies to wives, to be obedient unto their own masters. Does the Bible say that about wives to husbands? Be obedient to their own husbands? Certainly it does. And to please them well in all things. But I did what he wanted. I'll tell you from my own experience. You know, my wife isn't perfect. There are things I've asked my wife to do. My wife has always done what I asked her to do. And I've been the most frustrated husband this side of the Mississippi many times with my wife. How can that be if she's always doing what I want her to do or usually doing what I want her to do? Because she doesn't do it well. That doesn't mean she fixes a better supper. It means her attitude, pleasing them well. When a woman does something and doesn't do it with a right, aggressive, confident, heart-hearty attitude, it's as if... Or it would be the same as if she didn't do it and rebelled and slapped him in the face because it brings about the same level of anger. And I'll tell you that from a husband's standpoint. These are the words of God, not the words of Jonathan Crosby. To please them well in all things. Please them. Do it to their satisfaction. You owe your husband in every room of that house, bedroom and kitchen, and in public, to please him, and to please him well. In how many things? All things. And then he adds to that, not answering again. But, 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 but I don't like that. God doesn't care what you like. God doesn't care what you like. What does your husband like? Remember? Or are you forgetting Genesis 3.16? But, but I don't have time. I, but I, I'm too tight. But, 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 but. Not answering again. Listen, if you've ever been in management and you have employees always answering again, you want to smash them. You don't answer again. The Bible tells us not to answer again. Do you answer again? Well, I will in a few minutes. I'll do it in a few minutes. If he asks you to do it now, do it now. I love to see you women throw up your hands in despair when your children say, I'll do it in a few minutes. I grin inside. It's a precious sight to see a woman who doesn't even have a relationship like a man to a wife losing it over the children doing something similar to what she does to her husband every day because she thinks that they're in so much of a position inferior to hers relative to her husband, and they're not. Please them well. I've made very clear that submission is not modified in any way by the ability, nor the character, nor the treatment that the husband gives the wife. You still owe him everything that you owe a God-fearing husband. 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 2, serving a forward master is what behavior is acceptable and pleasing to God and thanks and deserves thanksgiving. Women, you know what I think about girls being able to choose their own husbands. I think it stinks. For 6,000 years, the world knew better. The Bible knows better. 
But I want to remind you of something. You get to live in this, quote, enlightened, advanced, unquote, age. You got to choose your husbands from all the men in the world. You voluntarily chose the man that you're living with. By all means, by all means, ladies, you ought to put Sarah and the women of the Old Testament to shame. Because look it, you're married at the man you chose. The women in the Old Testament many times did not know their husband and did not see him until the night they were in bed with him. And in the morning when they got up, they called him Lord. And they turned the light on, and he was the ugliest thing they'd ever laid their eyes on. (laughs) And finally, he says a word. She pulls out a book and says, why don't you read to me? And he can't read. (laughs) She fixes him a fine meal, and he sits there and belches. And you know what? She called him Lord. She called him Lord. She served him well. And she wanted to obtain children for him. You, get, you chose out of all the men on this planet, five, two and a half billion, you chose the man that you're married to and you entered into it voluntary. This is an experiment in human relations. And guess what? You can't submit like the women of old time who are married to men they never chose and never saw and who treated them with far less liberty and privilege that you women are treated with. It's amazing. The perverse nature of man. The marriage relationship is by mutual assent. It's voluntary. And when I say it's voluntary, women, that doesn't mean it's an option at all. It simply means that God commands you to submit. He doesn't command the husband to make you to submit. It's not an option. It doesn't make a marriage better. It's an absolute essential. It's a commandment. It's an ordinance, Romans chapter 13. But let let me explain on that subject just a little bit further. Once a person under authority assents to the person in authority to be over them, then the one in authority has the right to enforce the authority. You've got to think it through in your mind. David was made king of Israel by God. Could David just get in a jeep and ride into Jerusalem and become king and sign a piece of paper that he was king? All of Israel gathered together into one place and made him king. How do you make a man king? We will serve you. God made him king, but then the people had to voluntarily assent to him. All submission is voluntary. Any manager knows that. If they don't like it, bye-bye, have a nice life. And there they go. All submission is voluntary. That doesn't mean it's any less required. It's commanded by God. But once you assent to it, this is a position God has created. I am now under the authority of it. I give you the authority over me. That, position, that man in authority has the right and responsibility to enforce it. After they made David king, if one of those citizens decided... I really would rather have someone else be king. What could David do to him? Cut his head off. Once a wife has agreed to the marriage relationship with a man and she's in it, she has voluntarily submitted to his authority and she should be voluntarily submitting every day and every moment of every day. But her husband has the right and responsibility to enforce it, to teach it, to train her, to remind her in it, 
and to enforce it. And there's all sorts of ways a husband can enforce submission on the part of his wife if he's wise. Not only that, the husband may increase his demands over time. As he learns more and more that he ought to be in authority, that marriage was created for his benefit, he may increase his demands so that he's expecting more of you than when you married him. That's his right also. God gave him that. How do you get started? And I finished with this last Sunday evening, and I want to do it again this evening. If you fear God and you have faith in his word, which is why I'm preaching from Hebrews right now, to to exhort you sisters to lives of faith. If you are going to be and you want to be a holy woman, like the Bible describes, the first thing you have to do is admit absolutely, unconditionally, that what you've heard from God's Word is what God said, and it is true. You have full evidence that it is what works, it is how God arranged a marriage, and there are no buts, ifs, ands, compromises, or modifications of it. That's the first step, a mental decision. It's in the black and white print, it's in our Bibles, it's there as much as anything else. I'm going to do it. The second thing you ought to do is to thank God for the man he's given you and make him the center of your life. The next thing you ought to do is to confess to God and your husband your rebellion, your lack of reverence, your lack of service, your lack of pleasing him, your defrauding of him, denying him, costing him, bothering him, frustrating him. Confess it to God and to him and state your desire to serve him well, verbally. Verbally tell that man you are sorry for the way you've been treating him and that you are now going to treat him better and confess it to God and to him. And pour out your soul and do it right. Action and words go together. A lot of women will come back and say, but can't I just change in my mind and go ahead and do it? That's not serving your husband. What if God would have saved you eternally and written your name in the book of life and never told you about it. Wouldn't that be an exciting religion? We'd end up in heaven when we die, but we wouldn't know anything about it here. What does God require of his church while they're here in this world? Simply to do what he said? Or does he say that there's an instrument of your body that's called your glory, and that glory is to be exercised in reverence? What is your glory? your tongue. God expects praise and a song from us all the time. And a wife is to submit to her husband as the church does to Christ and to reverence him. You say, would my husband like it? Wait a minute. Your husband would love it. You say he doesn't deserve it. God said he deserves it. Why don't you give it to him? What's the problem? You know what the problem is? You're not submissive enough. I'm talking about getting the wheels down on the pavement right now and scraping the skin off. You're not submissive enough. 
There are some of you women that I know right now your blood pressure is 15 points higher than it was three minutes ago. You can't even imagine it, hardly. Confessing and pouring out your soul to your husband that you have not reverenced him in the way the women of the Old Testament did. The holy women that Peter in the New Testament said were the examples of New Testament women to unconverted husbands. You don't have anything else to thank him for. Thank him that he loves God. And praise him. And confess. And get on your knees and confess to God in his presence. Worship him. Praise him. Tell him you want to serve him. That your purpose in life is to please him. Men love the verbal reverence and affection of their wives. Why do you want to deny him that? That's how you can get started. Women, I want to appeal to you. Will you please start talking more to one another? I mean, I preach on communication, but I guess it's not plain enough. Sisters, will you please talk to each other about submitting to husbands and submitting to men and reverencing your husband? Will you please talk about it a little more? Will you confess your faults one to another, that it's hard to do, that you're struggling with it? Will you pray about submitting to your husband with one another? Will you praise your husband to other women? Will you try to promote godly women in this church since the Bible tells you to do that? In Titus chapter 2 and verse 5, where it says older women should teach the younger women to obey their husbands, to love their husbands, Will you help me and this church and the glory of God by doing that? If some of you godly women, the spiritual women in this congregation would do that, you can lay a burden of conscience on the other women greater than I can lay. Because coming from a woman, just imagine what it would be like when a woman speaks from the oracles of God regarding submission. Will that ever put women in their place? Have lunch. Have dates with some of our younger women. And do what the Lord expects you to do. And let's have some godly wives in this church so we can have some God-pleasing marriages. If any woman laughs, jokes, or says anything about this sermon, rebuke her to her face. Rebuke her to her face. She says it twice, slap her. You say, that's awful. You're going a long way. Listen, if I ever pick up one of you men and we drive by a 7-Eleven and I go inside and come out with a paper bag that looks like it has magazines in it and throw it in the back seat and you're sitting in the front seat, you look in that bag, brethren. And if there's some magazines in there, you tell me right there to stop the car and throw them out. And if I don't, use any physical means you have at your disposal to force me to do that, and I'll love you for it. If the righteous, what does the Bible say? If the righteous smite me, I'll consider it a kindness. There's going to be some jesting. It will happen. I pity the woman that'll do it. The rest of you women get an angry countenance and stop it and rebuke her to her face. Encourage one another joyfully, actively, fully to submit to your own husband. Don't joke about authority. We live in a day... You turn on the very best of our comedies. You know, Cosby and his family. I wouldn't dare let my kids watch that program. 
and the whole world raves in such a great family program. They're joking all the time. How in the world can you joke about authority? Do you joke about the, th the object that you're supposed to be reverencing? How can those two go together? How can cursing and blessing come from the same mouth? Joking and reverence. They don't go together, brethren. Don't let the women joke about authority or about their husbands or about this preaching. And I don't want to hear one word about I can't wait till the men get it. I'm going to tell you women something right now. If it wasn't for Paul having said husbands in Ephesians chapter 5 and Colossians chapter 3, I wouldn't even preach it in a mixed assembly. You don't deserve to hear it. Because it is not your responsibility. The men are going to get most of what they're going to hear at the men's meetings. I'm going to do the bare essentials next Sunday night to satisfy the Apostle Paul. I am so sick and tired of women just sitting there and grinning, waiting until their husbands get it. Well, if he was a better husband, I'd know how to submit. I'd want to submit. It is irrelevant how your husband treats you from your vantage point. I'll take care of the husbands, and God will take care of them. And believe me, there are a few things said. Don't let women talk that way. The last point I want to make is slightly off the subject, but not much. The Bible says, Whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. You will get out of this congregation and this church relationship what you put into it. I could write your 59 names in a board in front of me right now and rank them from number 1 to number 59 and what you're getting out of this congregation. Some of you are saying inside yourselves, What's, what's the big deal about being a member of this church? You know what your problem is? You don't put anything into it. A number of you come in here and warm a chair and go live your own life for the rest of the week. You're not getting a thing out of it. You're a waste. You're a waste to yourself. You're just ruining your own lives when you have such an opportunity, and you're ruining the rest of ours by being here. The Bible expects all members of a body to contribute and it's that which every joint supplies that makes a church profitable. I want to say this. The past 168 hours have been one of the, if not the very best, 168 hours I have had in this church. And I am sick about half of you missing it almost altogether, and a third of you missing it altogether. From last Sunday evening all the way through this week, I have been with a number of families and couples who have opened up and stopped playing the games of superficiality, confessed their faults, talked about submission, talked about loving one another, and it has been fabulous. It has provoked me to zeal and to love and to good works toward my wife, and I am your pastor. From last right through the week, every day something has happened. But it's not going to happen when you just go to work, go home, eat, sleep, and go to work again. You've got to get involved. I know that some of you still have your prayer partners, but I know it's precious few. I know that there are at least a couple of families or several families in this church that are getting together every week and are trying to have Bible studies and prayer and sing together and share with each other and get to know each other and building some tight friendships.
And that is the greatest one. One couple on another couple. Very complex. Two husbands, two wives, four people. If they can get together, there's so much to be shared. The one husband can learn from the other wife things that he might listen to that he might not from his own wife. Tremendous advantage. God teaches it. That's why we have a church. You don't have a church to hear me. I can do it in my office and send you tapes. Paul could have written a bigger book and just mailed it out. We have a church for these kind of things to take place, and I'm at a loss about some of you. Some of you are a waste in the kingdom of God. You get out of church what you put in it. My mother used to tell me that all the time. I'd go to Boy Scouts. I'd come home and I'd say, oh, what a boring group that is. Well, you'll get out of it what you put in it. Oh, how true that was. How true it was. You'll get out of anything what you put in it. I've had some great times this week. And I wish the rest of you were having it. We've got to speak openly. Be bold. When you're with another couple, I know it. you are so afraid to open up and be bold because if you're the only one confessing and they don't confess some of their faults, guess what? You look like a reprobate and they look like a saint. And it's dangerous. But I hope to God I've preached enough in this congregation that both parties will confess their faults, share them with one another, pray for them, and you can both be bettered by it. Open up. If you have an hour with another person at lunch, you see them in the street, you have your prayer partners, go directly to them and open up and don't, let's not play games. What's the worst thing you've done to your husband in the last week? What's your biggest problem you have in loving your wife? Go after some of the issues that we have to deal with. And let's communicate with one another, exhort one another, and be the better for it. You'll only get out of this church what you put in it. And God knows that, and now you know that. If you'll sow liberally, you'll reap liberally. It's been a great week. I wish all of you could say that. I'd like all of you saying that because I can learn from everyone in here. And I want to learn from everyone in here. I want you to quit playing games with me and open up. Tell me the way you were raised by your parents. Tell me some of your experiences, your dating experiences, your marriage problems. As a brother, I want to know them. I've got them. And let's make each other better the way God has intended from the beginning by human society. Two are better than one. And brethren, 59 is a whole lot better than two. May God bless us to that end.